You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocals of Cryptopsy. You're listening to my podcast, Vox and Hops, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians to talk about their lives, music, and craft beer. I hope you guys had a great weekend. I hope you had a chance to uh, sit back, relax, uh, try to enjoy life a little bit amidst all the craziness that is COVID-19. I know that social isolation can be difficult. If you are having any trouble and you are feeling like you need to reach out to someone, There are many ways that you can do that. You can video call someone. You can do some virtual hangs. You can come and hang out at the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday virtual hang, which happened every Thursday night. This is open to everyone. You can come and hang out with some of the Vox and Hops alumni, other Vox and Hops heads. There is no pressure. If you don't have a craft beer, it doesn't matter. If you do, join us. It's important for us to still connect with people even though we are socially isolated. So the invitation is there. Come and hang out this Thursday at the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday Virtual Hang. On today's episode, I'm with John Longstreth, the drummer of Origin. Here it is, Vox and Hops, episode number 125. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everybody? Today I'm with John Longstreth from Origin. Uh, long time coming. I've been wanting to be with you. You were supposed to come through here uh, with Beneath the Massacre and Defeated Sanity. And there was a bunch of uh, flip-flop and openers on that tour. But sadly, you had to pull out due to COVID-19. And I was going to sit down with you there. But we're doing it now, and I'm happy about that. How are you? Here we are. I'm doing really well, uh, all things considered. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I've been really busy. One of the the up things of COVID-19 for the podcast has been that I've started doing this over the internet, which is something that I never did before. It was always face-to-face sharing a craft brew. So everybody's home, so I'm getting to catch everyone all at once. It's just a, a matter of finding enough hours in the day enough hours in the day to, to get everything accomplished that I have on my schedule. How are you handling this? You know, it's really interesting, and it was really depressing at first. Um, but what I'm feeling like is happening is I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to enter a new world. You know, it's like it's going to be different when when they incrementally lift all the all the the bands and let people back out again. But as I go back out into this new world, I. I'm going to have video editing skills. I'm going to have online teaching skills. I've got a system I'm rounding out. I'm learning how to use my my little my humble little recording studio. So I'll have full 16 channel recording capability in my studio. So not to take any competition away from the grid. I would never. <laughs> but send me your guitar tracks and I will sell you demo drums. You know. So I'm really looking forward to being. Uh, more active online and being more professional and then then the tours are going to start and then then we'll see it's going to be interesting i'm excited about the the new the brave new world donaldson the grid you were mentioning the grid that's uh, a yes christian donaldson's uh, studio 
And last night, honestly, we were doing the very first online cryptopsy writing session where we're all logged in on Zoom and Chris can share his screen and he's got like this plugin for Pro Tools where we can hear exactly what's happening. It's very, very interesting. And it was there's some glitches that we need to iron out, but it's it's going to be good for the future of cryptopsy. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. I uh, I would love to get my guys on board with that. But like they're not. I mean, it's getting people to this is it's difficult stuff to to understand from from ground zero from like I don't I didn't know how to stream or how to stream with audio in until about three days ago <laughs> and like it's been a whirlwind and now I'm doing some private lessons and the the music school I work for uh, the collective school of music you know because you can't have the school open we're doing everything remotely now so I start teaching tomorrow classes and that'll be interesting so it's like this past week has been a very bizarre learning experience. And, you know, it, like, like I said, it was really depressing and crazy at first. But now I'm kind of like, oh, neat. I'm learning things. And wow, becoming an adult. I don't know. <laughs> let's let's just not tell anyone just yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't start your cool stuff until I get my cool stuff figured out. <laughs> you guys uh, were one of the last warriors out there. I think so. On your tour, you were probably one of the last bands to cancel everything. So, so take me through those last few days, what the mindset was in your van. How are you guys feeling approaching all these shows, having cancellations, having to find different places? I can only imagine that it was horrible. It was, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely creepy. We, we didn't really think much about it until, it was funny because we pit, we we rent our van from from Bandigo and our merch guy Kevin. He flies into Chicago and drives it down to Kansas, and we load everything up. And we were actually we were going to our first show, which was in Kansas City, Missouri, at the Riot Room, and that's an hour. Shout out to Dallas. Yes, hey Dallas, Dallas and Tim. That's an hour drive from Topeka, where where Paul and Mike, my guitar player and bass player, are from where the band started. So load everything up and it's an hour long drive and we're listening to NPR and I feel like collectively this is when we all really started tuning into what was going on and we're just like wait a minute this seems kind of serious and then the Beneath the Massacre guys popped up at the riot room making all kinds of this tour is dead what are we even doing I'm like, what are you talking about and it took like we the tour made it four days we were Three days in, and maybe around lunchtime on the third day in, uh, right outside Chicago, it was like, we got to have a talk and we got to figure out what's going on here. And we hatched this plan to, because at this point in time, Beneath the Massacre had been called back to Canada. You know, uh, all Canadians traveling abroad must come back to Canada while we still have the resources. And so they took, they went, they went with that and, um, you know, they, they took our merch guy, Kevin Panko, who, you know, writes for Decibel and all that. So he went with them cause he's from Canada. So all the Canadians went back home and we decided to go up and play Detroit. And then instead of going up through Canada, which was supposed to be, you know, like four Canadian days, the original plan was to shoot over to, uh, uh, Northern New York where Jason lived drop off the merch at his house so he could put it on Big Cartel. And we were going to sit for a few days until the New York City show, which would have been the 21st. And like 
10 minutes later, 15 minutes later, that plan crashed. It's like, all right, this is a great plan. And then all of a sudden, all bars are being closed in New York City. Like, so that was done. And so we hatched a plan in the morning, hatched plan by noon to do this. 10 minutes later, we're adjusting that plan. 15 minutes later, we're like, oh, this tour is done. We're just going to go home. <laughs> so we played the Detroit show. It's great. This is the saddest thing was these four shows were wonderful. We were doing large merch numbers with full rooms in the Midwest in March. Yeah, yeah, which is, is rare at times. Wow. Wow. Like all of a sudden, Origin was like, hmm, this is good stuff for us. And no. Uh, so yeah, we ended up driving, drove to Cahoes, dropped off all the merchandise. I grabbed a rental car back down to Queens. Paul and Mike drove the van back to Sopeka, uh, unloaded all the gear and got rid of the trailer. And then Paul drove on to San Francisco in the van. Holy shit. And returned okay. the van in San Francisco. Paul Ryan went coast to coast <laughs> and, uh, it was brutal. I can't. I can't even imagine. I was home three hours later in a rental car. Mm-hmm. Um, he got home like four days. Yeah, later. Yeah. Four days later, he. I think he stopped in Denver and saw some friends. I think he took the southern route, you know, the scenic route and all that. And we were all really worried. Like, how is he going to get back into California? Because it was looking so grim at that point. And you know, you know, here I am. I'm thinking, okay, I'll just spend the entire time in the drum room and play drums all day. And sure enough, a couple of days later, uh, rehearsal facilities were considered, uh, you know, they closed that down. So that brings us up to now. Yeah. Up here in Canada too, in Montreal, they closed all our jam rooms. So if you're not set up to do it in your own home, then you're, you're sort of screwed right now. Yeah. I, uh, having serious pangs of jealousy for people that own their houses and have their drums set up in there. So yeah, you have just a, a digital kit then. Yeah, I got a little digital kick drum and a practice pad. Uh, I brought my I brought my interface home, uh, so I can run a kick trigger sound and actually mic my practice pad. And <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> you know you got to work with what you got, and that allows me to do a line in into the into the Zoom like we're on right now. And it's been fun so far. It's got me thinking in different ways. That's good. That's good. We always have to grow. Fox and Hops is all about hanging out with fellow metal musicians, talking about their lives, music, and of course, craft beer. Uh, what do you have there? I have yet to make a decision yet. I can go the tried and true path. This is a six point meltdown. Ooh, I've never had that. So it's a, it's a hazy IPA. It's 8%. Other than that, I got this interesting thing here, a little off the beaten path because it's Vox and Hops, but this is Black Fang Mead. So. Ooh, that looks cool too. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Nosferatu. And this is only 6%, which may, uh, may be better for day drinking, but. It is 2 p.m. for everyone that's uh, listening. It is 2 p.m. So. and we are day drinking. So I guess I'm going with the meltdown. Perfect. On my side, I'm drinking uh, Tamayar from La Gabière. It is a go-to New England IPA up here in Montreal. It's your best bang for your buck. It's always uh, consistent. It is uh, deliciously hazy, juicy, 
perfect for day drinking with good people like John. <laughs> Thank you. Um, how do you correctly pronounce Unibrew? That's it. Unibrew. Unibrew. They have one yeah, in English. They have one called Terrible. Oh, and it's they do. Yes, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's yeah. <laughs> I think it's terrible. It is wonderful. I, I, I think it's a. It's definitely a Belgian style because they're they're definitely all. All, all inspired by Belgian breweries. Unibrew, up here they are. For anyone listening at home, they're the grandfathers of craft beer up here in uh, Montreal, in Quebec. Them and Boreal. If it wasn't for them, there wouldn't be much craft beer happening at all. That looks good. Nice pour. He's got an origin glass. You need the origin glass. That's right. Just like I got the Vox and Hops glass. Yeah, the Vox and Hops glass. We got the origin glass. If you turn it. Doo -doo 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 -doo. All things drunk. <laughs> so that yes, that, cheers, cheers, buddy. That dates it to uh, the not recent record, but the record before that, um, "Omnipresent," which the song "All Things Dead," which spawned a pillowcase, "All Things Beds." <laughs> Where did this come from? Does it come from Jason? I always imagine it comes from Jason because he's just so funny. Yeah, he's got the he's got the quick wit comedy. Um. It was an interesting. I was having a conversation with uh, Septimu from Pestilence, and he he says he says to me, he goes, "I'm surprised you don't have. I thought you were British because of the because of the comedy, because of the comedy." And I'm like, "That's interesting." He goes, "Yeah, you guys have like a very British flair to your comedy." So, okay, yeah, yeah. So Jason brings both the comedy and the gut wrenching despair. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is uh that that what the space theme of the band has turned itself into instead of like ooh wowie space because we don't have because we don't do you know religion or or gore or politics we'll just do space that's how it started but nowadays it's kind of like humankind goes out into the cosmos to find the next world and fizzles out and dies in a whimper. <laughs> Okay, that's what we're going with. It's kind of like if you ever saw the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I did not. Which, yeah. which was a fantastic show. And we based, we ended up, you know, because a lot of people kind of went with the space thing as well. And we're kind of like, oh, shit, how do we, how do we recapitalize? So there you go. <laughs> Take me back to your youth, John. Uh, you're growing up, growing up in your house. What music was playing when you were not in control of the music? Jazz. My father was a jazz musician, so one of the first things I ever heard was Miles Davis. Cool. Probably, it's probably Miles Davis, Coltrane, Frank Zappa, and Steely Dan. Because <laughs> Steely Dan was the rock band that all the jazz guys could listen to. And so my mom was a nurse. She's working the day shift, and my dad would be working the night shift. Wait a minute. Oh, let's flip that. My mom was working the night shift. Well, they're both working the night shift. So during the day, I'm at home. My brother and I are at home. My dad's at home. And he's got musicians over for band practice. And so they would just, this is the back in the early 80s, you know, and they would just bring a stack of records with them. And they just put records on the record player. And they'd work over, they'd have records on the record player. And they have big notebooks open. And they're writing things. And then they would rehearse. So that's kind of what music was to me when I first saw it as a kid. It was something that belonged to your father. Yes. And it wasn't just something that you heard on the radio, because that was the interesting thing, because, yeah, you heard it on the radio, but then at the same time, 
I'm also witnessing, you know, between three and five people all sitting around having these roundtable discussions about it, writing things down and smoking a lot of weed. And yeah, it's always funny. Why do their cigarettes smell so different than moms? <laughs> um, and so when, you know, from that early age, my brother and I were witnessing music as a completely immersive form of life. So that's kind of, you know, so we had that. And, you know, like I said, a lot of Miles Davis, a lot of Thelonious Monk, Coltrane, you know, and that's pretty much what we had. I don't, I'm, my mom was into classical music, but my dad dominated the music in the house. So every now and then there would be something that would come on that my mom would put on, but I never quite got into the classical music because I just, just wasn't pounded into my head like it was for my dad. I'm assuming he was a drummer. Am I right or am I wrong there? It's a pianist. Really? Okay. Why, why did you gravitate towards the drums? Buddy Rich. He uh, put on, you know, because he was always putting on records. And I think from, as it was explained to me, is uh, the Buddy Rich album would get put on and this face would happen. So <laughs> the the concentrate towards the speaker face would happen. So that's how they kind of, they were able to figure that one out is uh, when the Buddy Rich records came on, I would walk towards the speakers, I guess. And so, and then, you know, every drummer has the pots and pans story. So I have my version of that. And then somewhere along the line, uh, I think when I was in kindergarten, they brought home a drum kit. My dad actually didn't want me to be a musician <laughs> because my mom was a nurse and she was the sole breadwinner and he was not bringing home the money that she was. So he wanted me to go get an education, but uh, no. How did that balance happen uh, as you were growing up in your teens? Did he keep pushing you towards a higher education or did he give up the battle? Uh, he eventually gave up the battle and reluctantly accepted that I was an okay musician. <laughs> and by the time that he passed, I think he was proud of me. So That's beautiful. Yeah, I hope at least. Uh, take me to your first gig. You, you said you got your first drum set when you joined kindergarten. What about you stepping on stage for the first time? Mm. I want to say I was in high school, maybe. I don't quite remember. I know it was in Lenexa, Kansas at a place called Brewski's. And I know that the song, I know that The Sound of White Noise by Anthrax had just come out. Because I was super happy because I was really worried about Anthrax not, not having Joey Belladonna in the group. And then when Only came out, I was like, well, that's a killer song. And on my way over to the first gig, that song came on, and I was in a 1976 Chevy Impala with all my drums in there, and I was like on a 35. I think the road. I think the speed limit was 35 miles an hour. I think I floored it and just blasted 100 miles an hour down at a gig and blew all the red stoplights. <laughs> I must have been 15 or 16 or something like that. I don't remember. But yeah, that was the first gig. So like, I got the drum set in kindergarten, but I didn't play it for. A handful of years. I didn't start playing it until I was, you know, fifth or sixth grade. So that's kind of when I started on it. Uh, why do you think uh, in this modern era there are so many fantastic fucking young drummers? Do you think that there's more than back in the 90s? I feel like there is many more of them. What, what, what would your take on that? Either there's more of them or we are more aware of them because of YouTube. That's true. Yeah. 
So you know, YouTube is a is a double edged sword because you can um, working at a music school. You know, we have to. That's YouTube presents a challenge because you can spend how many thousands of dollars on a on a you know on a, on, on on a quarter of music study, or you can just go pick the thing up at YouTube for free, buy a lesson, and have a guy walk you through it. So, you the the sad thing about it is I was having a discussion with my friend Steve, who plays in Ross the Boss, which you need to go check out. Absolutely, yeah. And he was like, there was a point in time in the '90s when, if you heard a death metal drummer, like when we first saw Flo, we didn't know what was happening, and you came from hundreds of miles and if you couldn't get in you cornered the guy in the parking and you asked him questions you would figure out whatever kind of way you could like if you weren't old enough you would have to jukebox hero this thing and that happened plenty of times i remember sneaking into a venue just to get a peek at dave kulross and i just ran up on him i was just like how do you play a blast beat and (laughs) And he was nice, and he did. And then we, and um, so, not being, not having these people readily like just type anybody up, and they're right there. Not having that, and along with it being new, obviously it was very new. It was only a, only a couple of years old since Altars of Madness came out, since the Terrorizer record came out. And yeah, so nowadays you have YouTube, and you have which is a free learning service if you use it right. And yeah, there are just tons and tons. You know, it doesn't take, you know, a guy playing a blast beat at 260 doesn't matter anymore. It's crazy, eh? <laughs> or doesn't matter as much. It feels like it doesn't matter. You know, from the inside, it, it feels like, I mean, I know from the outside, you know, I just, I just did this cool radio program and everybody was, oh, wow, people are really into this. So, but yeah, that, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. There, I'm, I'm sure there's more. Uh, who, who would be some of these young drummers that have impressed you? Man, Anthony Barone, the guy that just did the that guy. And the funny thing with him was is he came to one of our Murder Hand sessions, which is a all-inclusive, bring a pair of sticks and sit in with us, practice pad circle. That's badass. You know, we have a lot of fun. It's so fun. And this kid showed up, and he just, like, the, the, the three of us, uh, it's myself... Tobias Ralph and Alex Cohen. And we kind of curate this thing. Lou Santiago Jr. is in there as well. We don't see him as much because he's in the middle of battling the COVID in the hospitals. So, hmm, that guy. Terrifying. But, yeah, and so we're working up all these exercises and we're, we're beating the crap out of the three of us. Like, the four of us. I mean, and it's just difficult. And, like... Only a couple of people have just come in and just smiled at us and just rolled through the exercises with us without any much of a difficulty. And he was one of them. And I was like, who's this guy? <laughs> and it turned out he didn't even tell me at the moment that he was doing that he was in Beneath the Massacre. I mean, that would have been a whole mess of conversation right there because I already know those guys. So that would have been great. But it wasn't until Beneath the Massacre started coming back around talking about a new record that he was involved in it. So... So that guy's a monster. Tobias Ralph is one of my favorite drummers right now. Just because, hey, he's one of my favorite people. You know, I get to consider him a, a, a drum instructor. And, you know, he's just... I've never really watched somebody play drum and bass before. Yeah, 
That's badass. So that's really cool. And what is possible, what is capable there. So that guy's wonderful. But yeah, Barone ended up getting the baby metal gig. I know. Yeah, it's it's really badass. And he was also on that Shadow of Intent record, which is, oh, which is a... That's right. You got to mention. Yeah, I haven't heard it. It's good. It's good. No, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. Yeah, I'm pretty behind the curve as far as what's going on with extreme music right now. Do you still follow you it? Know. Is it something you you hunt for? A little bit here. Nah, not so much. I mean, I'll I'll hear something and then I'll hunt for that and then I'll kind of just I don't know. Like the I recently fell in love with this band called Gygax. Oh, see, no, I don't know that one. <laughs> Yeah, they're just kind of, it's kind of like, it's classic metal. It's got kind of a thin Lizzy feel to it. It has kind of a sword thing going on. And other than that, I've been, I've been working on a lot of jazz lately with my friend Von Stofi, who's actually getting me into playing some gigs. But what I want to know is who played drums on Paracletus by Deathspell Omega? I don't know. Who is that guy? Because... If he's a real human being, I need to talk to that guy. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is. But every now and then you get some guy that comes around going, Oh, I know who he is, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm like, okay, you're full of shit. But, yeah. Why is the drumming world so tight? I feel like out of all of the instruments, drummers are more there for each other and more connected. It sounds like you were around Summer Slaughter recently. <laughs> you know... I don't, it's, it's funny because you can say that because if you do a big festival tour, yeah, all the drummers, they're always helping get all the gear on and off stage if, if they're cool. You know, sometimes you get dudes that just don't get it, don't realize that it's supposed to be helping. But yeah, this is what I, I witness on, on these tours. Like I've done three summer slaughters, I think, done a handful of festivals in Europe and yeah, you've always got a couple of drummers hanging around being dorks and helping each other get off stage and they're, they're trading practice pad chops and all that. <laughs> but keep in mind all throughout the, all throughout the nineties and the two thousand early two thousands drummers were tearing each other up. That guy's a cheater. That guy's two footing double strokes is cheating. One handed rolls bullshit. You know, he triggers his drums blah 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 you know so there was so much of that you know you, you got to look at both sides of it i feel like you know like early internet you know tells you one story but then being amongst the people and like actually being involved with it, i think that tells you a better story so yeah i don't know it's all the trolls that cause the trouble on the internet yeah it's funny because we used to call them music police <laughs> it, was, it was the music police that that's the guy that would come and stand and be like look at you Look at you while you're playing. I know those guys very well. Yeah. <laughs> Try and get you to respond. Come on. Stop it. Um, don't read the comments. Yeah. Don't. No, don't do that. <laughs> it took me a long time to get my guitar player, Paul, to stop reading the comments on the, the origin YouTube videos. Yeah, yeah. Rule number one, don't read the comments. And rule number two, which is the more important one, never respond. Don't feed the <laughs> trolls, man. Yeah. Yeah. Music police, trolls. I don't know. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't, it was, what was funny was that for years and years and years, drummers were just thrashing the shit out of each other. That guy can't play. And you know, I was, I was in the center of it because 
my my second professional record with Angel Corpse, an album called Exterminate. It's widely known that we had to rebuild so much of that in Cakewalk Pro Audio. And that was a learning experience, man. We went down to Tampa. We recorded it at Morris Sound. We were in Studio B tracking Exterminate while Morbid Angel was in Studio A mixing Formulas Fatal. And here's how cool Pete Sandoval is, man. He came over while, while Jim Morris is rebuilding my double bass because I didn't know what I had gotten myself into. I was in over my head. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And Jim's just like, oh, we do this all the time. Sandoval comes over and he goes, hey, it doesn't matter, man. It's going to sound killer. And he didn't judge me for it. And he was like, he was like a really cool dude and all that. And, you know, so, but I, for a long time, would get flamed for, ah, it's fake double bass. It's not, you didn't really play that on the album. But how did it get out that, that, it, that it was rebuilt? Ah, it's a tight knit circle down there. If you go down and do something in Tampa and you hang out with the musicians down in Tampa, especially in 97, I think, you know, what What were they, uh, they were finishing Serpents of the Light by Deicide at that point in time. Formulas Fatal of the Flesh was being mixed. You know, it was that, it was a heavy time back then. And yeah, they were all, they were all really, really close down there. And it was just, I think you had a lot of guys that worked really hard on becoming killer death metal musicians and then anybody that was young and coming in you know it, it was it was it was it was hard they felt threatened i don't i don't know if they felt threatened or if that's just the way if it's like you know you you smack your baby brother on the head when he tries to you know play video games with you or something similar mentality but i mean you had to fight to to get in and it took a while but after a while that kind of you know boiled down and people still like exterminate for what it is and I mean, I'd love to have the chance to play those songs live one of these days and do it right. But so in the middle of like all of those drummers, and that went on for a long time, you know, when Niall put out Chapter for Transforming into a Snake on, on Black Sea's Avengers, you know, when Derek, the album Derek Roddy played on, all of a sudden everybody knew what 250 BPM was. They didn't know how to count. They didn't know what a quarter note, whole note, half note was. They didn't know what any of this was. They just knew that 250 BPM meant really fast blast beat so it was a lot of that you know i don't know if you were ever part of the relapse message board no absolutely not no i got into internet late man relapse message board around you know 98 99 2000 they in that place invented the music troll that was where they came from and <laughs> the funny thing was this this all comes to bear to this one point that what was it was it six or eight months ago when all the guitar players started nailing each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Jared Dine versus Lucas Mann and everything. When that happened, I was just like, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> Everything's full circle. So that was, per- that, was, that was partially funny and partially tragic at the same time. Yeah. But, you know, we've been watching guitar players do that for a bit now. And so it was really funny when the guitar players started eating each other up. I don't know. What what is something about your playing that you wish was better that you still struggle with? I wish I could play traditional single stroke double bass better. Okay. I really do. Um I don't know what it is about my body that refuses to let me get past 200 BPM. Just I can't really even can't do that. 
So I was able to develop this constant release double stroke thing. And it started out as, as a, as a, a workaround, you know, it was a, it was a means to an end to get me to, to get me up to these higher BPMs that my guitar player was getting up to. And I'm like, okay, well we'll do this for now. And then as time went on, I was kind of like, wait a minute, this isn't really a crutch. This, no, it's a tool. This could be a lot cooler than what it was. So I did the album. I did the first tour. Um, I, I think. And by the time I came out with you guys in Canada, I think at that point in time, I had really decided that, okay, this is going to be my path. This doesn't have to be a crutch. This isn't, it's not a handicap. It's just how I do things. And I developed something I was really comfortable with and I'm proud of and, you know, made it known and people, people tested me on it quite a bit and that's fine <laughs> that's fine because that's what that's what metalheads do they either fully love you like like a conversation with metalheads has to be some percentage roasting session yeah because we're all dorks so just because the opinions the opinions are so heartfelt that beer sucks and you're an idiot <laughs> yeah same thing about m- usually followed by a hug yeah well we'll see about that in the future but uh, uh that was a fun tour 2008 Canadian tour. It wasn't a successful tour, but it was a fun tour. It was fun. I With left the last s- felony. Yeah. Who big shout out to, to Vince, the drummer of the last felony is actually running a super cool craft beer brewery up here in Montreal, Masorum Brassatorium. They are actually probably the hippest craft beer brewery up here in Montreal right now. And they're killing it. Well, damn, when we come through, hopefully in November, We'll make a pilgrimage. Yes, it's a little bit out there, but it's it's worth the trip. Yeah, killer. Now, um, side note, uh, we're already working on a full reboot of that tour for November. Really good for for the one that you the beneath the massacre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're it's like we're all a little skeptical about it, but we're hoping for the best, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Everyone wants to see you guys, so that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were nervous about going out against Rotting Christ and Borknagar. Devastation on the Nation 2020. Yeah, but then we also realized that it was a completely different fan base. Totally. You know, we were getting the underground, the tech kids, the brutal kids, you know, and and they were getting the more European-based thing. So, but uh, I guess that all kind of just went to the wind, huh? Yeah. You said you lost something on uh, the the Canadian run that we did together. I cut you off. I believe... We played Montreal, and I left my cymbal bag. Really? I left my cymbals, and I was, and we're in the van, and we crossed the border. We're back in Albany, and we had a show in Albany, and I was like, oh, my God. Um, called Flo, and I'm like, Flo! And he's like, yep, I got it. Oh, really? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like can you? He goes, yep, going to do it this afternoon. He sent me my cymbals. Oh, what a sweetheart. Shout out to Flo. Oh, yeah, I've known, I've. I've known Flo for a long time, and we have agreed and disagreed, and ultimately, <laughs> I think he was the ultimate babe. He's good. He's killing it. He's uh, in prime shape, and he's playing as, as as good as he's ever played, honestly. I'm sure he is. What steps do you take towards uh, to getting those single-stroke double bass up to par where you want them to be? How, how do you work on these for people at home that are struggling with the same issues? As far as single-strokes, I don't really know. Um... I'm experimenting. I'm experimenting, but I I'm not gonna teach anybody single strokes. 
Okay, good. I'd rather I'd rather send that to somebody else that's good at that. I I can teach you how to play really clean, really precise double strokes. The kind that won't get you yelled at on or over the internet, by the way. <laughs> but um the thing about that technique, about the whole double stroke technique thing is is if a person comes to me, they always ask me the same question. How do I set up the triggers for double strokes? And that usually immediately tells me that they haven't really developed the technique enough yet because it should be, you know, drummers, you know, I apologize just to be nerdy for a second. It's like we're talking about the difference between a closed stroke roll and an open stroke roll. If you can play a solid open stroke roll with double, with double strokes on your feet, then most of the trigger setups are, that work normally are going to work with this. So dead kick drum, tight springs, light beaters, Focus on your technique, and all of a sudden, it becomes a technique and not a not a cheat code. There's your lesson. <laughs> uh, I asked you this because you came to the Vox and Hops uh, Thirsty Thursday virtual hang last week without even knowing that was what it was. Because <laughs> because you're in another band and your bandmates invited you. What is this band and who are these peeps? That is a nearectomy, and that is something that I. I uh, those those two guys, Joe and Chris, they're interesting. Um, they're wonderful, actually. They're these phenomenal guitar players, and they're big Origin fans. They're big Brodequin fans. Um, you know, less decay. They love all of this really underground, super technical, guttural stuff. And I'm, you know, it's the material kind of reminds me of Sleep Terror, only more. It, um. If you're familiar who Colin Marston is, not to name drop, but absolutely, he's one of my favorite people. We were working on some of this material the other day at his studio, and he goes, oh, yeah, this is like Origin with all the rock and roll taken out. <laughs> okay, that's cool. So that's what it is. Um, Neurectomy, we've got, we, we have roughly nine songs. Um, I can play through six of them. Awesome. And yeah, um, I guess the... One of my chores while we're while we're in downtime is to put together those those last three songs and have those figured out. Um, but the idea is when we're able to get in the studio and actually do this record, I really want to market it as and to to be kind of a troll myself. I really I really want to market it as you know when people complain about bands, all they're doing is just playing as fast as they can. There's a million notes and who cares? You know that. I'm going to cater against those people. You know, <laughs> Nerectomy is the band that all they're doing is playing a million notes as fast as they can. <laughs> because there are people that want to hear that. And we are here for you. Sounds beautiful. So, but yeah, Joe and Chris, they're both software guys. So they both kind of work around the clock a lot. So they go to the office and then they're at home. And then they get a call on the work phone and says, you got to get on. And you got to work on this server. So you'll those guys will end up working on a good day, nine hours. On a bad day, they're working around the clock. Mm-hmm. I know that life. My wife uh, worked in project manager for web, web-based stuff and uh, apps and stuff. So when shit's broken, it's got to be fixed now. Yeah, and that's definitely, and that that's, you know, every Thursday rolls along. And, and it's a crapshoot on whether these guys can make it out because chances are they've been on they've been on the software engineering clock for the past 12 hours and they're just shot and they got to go to bed. So, mm-hmm. so I don't, so, you know, but they're wonderful dudes and that is actually Joe 
that sent me that link, and he goes, yeah, let's uh, let's do a pub hang, let's 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 do a drink hang, you know, and all this stuff. And he'd been talking about this podcast for a while, but I don't, I don't know what it was that caused that caused me to miss looking at the link and clicking on it, and opening up, and there being twelve people, you and and, and Christian, and I'm like. Oh, <laughs> like as soon as I opened it, somebody went, what's he doing here? <laughs> I think it was, was Bill. Uh, shout out to Bill from Gloom. Yeah. <laughs> what's he doing here? I was like, oh, uh, anyway, hi guys. It was fun. Yeah, I'm enjoying uh, until we're released from social isolation. I'm hosting the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday virtual hangs where I hang out with uh, fellow metal musicians, uh, Vox and Hops alumni and uh, all the Vox and Hops heads out there. Definitely, you know. If you have me, I'll be there. We'll be fine. beautiful. It's it's you know we're all going through this together, and social isolation is hard for some people. So uh, let's drink some beer together. Yeah, I think it's hard for everybody. That I don't mind sitting at home. I like like we've become you know we've become kitchen wizards again. True, you're not the first person to say this to me. You know, my my girlfriend Simone, she has baked four loaves of bread. She's made cookies twice. We had taco Saturday. Um, we've I did a I did a yellow I did a yellow shrimp curry. <laughs> like, what? The funny the, the funny question my friend asked me was, "We're in New York City. How many of these people know how to cook?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they all they, they all live off of Seamless and, and all that stuff. Now they have to cook. It's true. So, it's true. But how are how is how's the convid life up there? It's uh. Well, I'm looking at my window right now, and I'm still seeing too many people out and about. But uh, it's 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 getting intense up here. Uh, Quebec is one of the biggest provinces being hit, so there's there's been talk of locking down Montreal, the island. We'll see what happens in the days that come. I guess the important question: Can you still get Montreal bagels? <laughs> I think uh, you can. I think so. <laughs> What are, you live in New York, so so what is it? A New, what? I live in New York, and every time, what's the difference, Montreal or, or New York bagel? Eh, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's so hard. What Gibson or Fender? It's like <laughs> every time we go up there. Um, my girlfriend is half Canadian. Her father is from Quebec City. And so we go up there and we visit her family members quite a bit. And of course, we always, I don't know what the name of the place is. Fairmount Bagels, the Montreal, the, the big one. The line out the door and everybody's yeah. leaving this big bag and you get the lip, you get the Liberté cream cheese, which you can't find anymore, I guess. But And they give us all the, pl- the plastic sleeves and we bag them all up, we throw them in the freezer and we have Montreal Bagels for the next three days. <laughs> It's like two dozen bagels. They can't. We can't. They can't stay in the house. But you know, I've got a bagel place right down the street that's phenomenal. It's totally different. But yeah, no, I wouldn't want to get a bagel anywhere else. Other than I agree. Places. I agree. That question that I asked at the the Thirsty Thursday virtual hang was, "What is your hangover cure?" Oh yeah, and let me. This is what I was referring to actually. I got some sideways looks from people from this, but. Honestly, dude, active activated charcoal. Okay, I've never heard about this. Yeah. Activated charcoal. Put activated charcoal in your gullet before you start your drinking. You want to be evil? Take pure blackness in pill form. Okay. 
and that, and that coats your stomach and then you 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 wake up feeling and your hands <laughs> covered in yeah, well um it it soaks up all the impurities in your stomach so and like we learned it from i mean this is a big russian cure but also at the same time it's exactly what they're going to give you as soon as they pump your stomach if you have alcohol poisoning at the, in the emergency room and that works the only problem is is you don't want to do activated charcoal and then vitamins or ibuprofen because it'll just suck it up and kill it and put it in your colon. Got it. Got it. Well, you you learned this from who, though? You, you were saying from a Russian? I learned from my girlfriend who okay. was uh, a Russian interpreter for the United Nations. But a uh, secret agent lady. But no. Um, ah, charcoal. Charcoal, water, and yeah, some kind of greasy bacon, egg, and cheese type sandwich. Beautiful. John, thank you so much. Taking some time, drinking some beer, and hanging out with me. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been wanting to chat with you for quite a while. I had a good time with Jason when I sat down with him. I knew I'd have a good time with you. Yeah, well, let's do it again in November if I can make it through. Absolutely. Cheers, man. man. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the end. You know that I love and appreciate that. Huge shout out to John. Such a cool dude. He's one of the regulars at the Vox and Hops Thirsty Thursday Virtual Hangs. He, as we mentioned, stepped into it not knowing what it was, but he's enjoyed himself. And uh, you should come out and hang out with me and him too. Every Thursday, as I mentioned during the intro, you should come and hang out at the Vox and Hops Virtual Thirsty Thursday Hangs. It's, uh, it's fun. I hope you guys have a good rest of the week. Got more episodes coming at you on Wednesday and Friday. That's how I'm going to run things during these crazy times on Mondays, on Wednesdays, and on Fridays. I'm going to be releasing episodes. Support the artists that you love. Drink local craft beer. It is very important to support things that you love right now if you want them to still be there when all of this is over. Have a good rest of the week. I'll see you on Wednesday. Remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hopsheads. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!